welcome to the Filmlings Podcast. A bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 81, an episode you can't refuse. And today we have joining us uh, Benjamin Angrazano. Welcome back, man. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. How you doing? Good, good. 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 We're excited to talk about one of your favorite series of all time, man. They um, are. Something uh, near or dear to your heart as a film lover. Uh, the Godfather series, which is one of the most famous series. Often part one and part two of the series are ranked among the best films of ever, all time. Period. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Regularly, regularly make the top 10 and the top five list. Um, and to have two parts of a trilogy make it up that high on a list of any type is freaking flabbergasting. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and this was not a movie that was set up to succeed like that in any way. It just came together brilliantly in a brilliant way and became its own thing. And then had a very um, interesting third installment. Some people think it works sort of. A lot of people think it's completely awful. Um, but we'll talk about that as well. But before we get into all of that, let's talk about what The Godfather is. Like a little bit of history on it. Um, it's based off of a book published in 1969 by one Mario Puzzo. Um, who took a lot of what happens in the book fairly straight from headlines in the days and uh, other big uh, mafia members and a lot of the people in the book are more or less acknowledged and analogous to one or two uh, real-life people smushed together to become a fictional person. Um, he would eventually publish a sequel called The Sicilian in 1984, um, which doesn't center around the Corleone family, but does feature them heavily. Um, and of course, Random House, the publisher of the original books, would go on to publish more sequels in the 90s and later on, but none of them actually written by Puzo himself. Um, it's like then, the Italian Jason to... Bourne series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and then eventually we would get to Francis Ford Coppola, born in 1939, a member of the film Brat generation. Um, his grandparents were of, did, of course, immigrate from Italy, uh, specifically southern Italy, towards the bottom of that boot, um, which is important because the way southern Italians and the way northern Italians have been treated as immigrants historically has, has differed. And in large part, the Italian culture that we cover in these books and these movies are Southern, specifically Sicilian, Italian culture. Um, anyway, Francis Ford Coppola would eventually attend UCLA Film School. Uh, just so happens that he would attend with one James Caan, who stars in uh, the original Godfather. Um, he His first directing gig was The Rain People from 1969, but his real claim to fame before The Godfather was that he co-wrote the Oscar-winning screenplay for Patton in 1970. Um, I didn't so at this point, that. he had an Oscar, but he wasn't a hot-ticket director. In fact, he really needed money. He was kind of down on his luck. And this Godfather gig came along. People have been wanting to make this book into a movie. It was a su successful book. Um, let's make it into a movie. But they didn't want to spend too much money on it. So uh, Coppola was their choice. And, of course, the making of the movie at the time was a little controversial. In fact, the mafia itself organized protests um, oh, of, of course the they studio did. making the movie. Uh, yeah, which is just hilarious. Um, th although no records exist of horses' heads appearing in beds <laughs> um, in in this 
in this version of life, I guess. But anyway, Coppola was partially hired because of his Italian credit. Um, and of course, he, he made it pretty pretty freaking Italian, but with enough style, panache, and a lot of emphasis on the good qualities of this particular subject of um, kind of tribal uh, Italian culture, the, f- the family responsibility, the love, as well as all the violence, that he kind of pulled it off, and now it's kind of become like a almost prideful example for a lot of uh, Italian Americans and the mafia community. I can't speak for all of them individually, of course. But anyway, what specific installments of the trilogy and what accolades have they won, Jonathan? Yeah, well, we're going to be talking about all the installments, so I'll just basically kind of go through the awards. So The Godfather from 1972 won Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Actor um, for Marlon Brando, although he refused that award, which is kind of a uh, big deal in Oscar history. Um, the Godfather, thing, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The Godfather Part Two from 1974, which won Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Set Decoration, and Best Score. And The Godfather Part Three from 1919, 1990, wow, uh, nominated for Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Director, Best Cinematography, Best Set Decoration, Best Editing, Best Score, uh, but won nothing. So, <laughs> yeah, it won nothing. Um, and perhaps that's because it was such a high pedestal it can never reach 20 years after the fact. The fact. Yeah. And maybe it was because it just really wasn't that good. I don't know. But it we'll, feels like we'll, a movie. We'll, we'll dig into that. Yeah, it feels like a movie that's like, oh, wait, those other movies were really good. But why is there this disconnect? We should at least like throw it some kind of recognition. I don't know. It's an interesting installment. Yeah, it's worth talking about. And much Absolutely. like some of the less less good movies that we've featured on the show so far, sometimes we're more interested in the more interesting conversation and the more interesting learning opportunity than we're interested in just featuring the best movies on the show. Yeah. So yeah. without further ado, let's jump into it with The Godfather from 1972. Jason, set it up for us. The Godfather, part one from 1972. Vito Corleone is the most powerful Don of the Sicilian crime families of New York, taking on the paternal role of the Godfather to his own family and community. He protects those who need protecting, avenges those who need avenging, and also manages one of the most profitable and violent mafias in the world. His oldest son, Sonny, is next in line to be Don. Tom Hagen, an Irishman, acts as consigliere. His middle son, Fredo, acts as a close assistant and chauffeur. But his youngest son, Michael, has decided not to be part of his father's criminal empire, instead becoming a war hero and dating an Anglo-American woman, Kay. But the status quo won't hold. The world changes, and drugs are becoming the new big business of the criminal world. A drug baron known as the Turk, in collusion with the Tataglia family, makes the Godfather an offer to join in the business. But the Godfather refuses, leading to an attempt on his life. In the fallout, Michael steps up, rejoining the family business he never thought he would, trying to walk the fine line of family of violence as he drifts closer and closer to being the next godfather. Okay, so first I want to preface that uh, there are going to be major spoilers for all of these films because there's no way to talk through them without spoiling uh, a lot of things, specifically deaths, mostly deaths. Um, but with that out of the way, um, Ben, I just kind of want to hear what is like your big takeaway. Like what is your 
pitch on why you love these films to someone who has never seen them before, like I hadn't before this week. Oh, I just think it encapsulates so much of what have made movies so engaging ever since then. Um, I think that all the themes in it about uh, old world meeting uh, new world kind of sensibilities and customs and the changing times and how you adapt to that, even through uh, just looking at this one family and how that kind of zooms out to how things changed generally and changed, especially then. But I think that, um, uh, you know, when we look at even like now it's, it's, there was a new wave in TV with it, but when we look at the idea of having, you know, an anti-hero or, or, you know, morally conflicted characters, you know, all these characters are, are evil. It's just like different shades of that, but you still kind of, and how much they justify it to themselves. Yes. Yeah. There's and a lot of you that. still are kind of having to root for one of them or another one because there's no one else to really play with. But they're also part of this family that you, you know, have such a realistic family, all like the, the scenes where they eat and stuff like you really get invested in them. Like their family. We'll talk about the opening sequence, I'm sure, in a minute. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, I think it's one of the only it's, you know, I was thinking about today. I think it's the, probably the, one of the first modern films. Because when you look at any film before that, or even most of the ones after it, like this feels like, to me, not like an old movie. Like I could watch it and it doesn't feel, I mean, there's some things that maybe don't uh, necessarily stand up in some ways. But um, like even something like Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid that came out just a couple of years before. It's like you watch this, you're like, oh, I'm, it's good, but I'm like watching an old movie. Like this, I just really feel like is one of the first ones that started changing the way we make movies and the kind of characters we make in movies. Um, I don't know. I just love this yeah. movie. I just really get into it too. I think anything about like the criminal underworld like that, Yeah. Um, if you can somehow legitimize them and humanize them, that's one of the most vicarious, thrilling things to engage in. Um, so I think that they kind of, in a sense, have that upper hand. A lot of times mafia stories reach the heights of, of lists just because, I don't know, people love them. So, Yeah, it's a compelling scenario and one that most people, most people would never dare tread on that side of morality in real life. So mm-hmm. the only chance they get to experience it is through a fictional work, through, through something like a movie or a book. Um, and movies obviously dominated the previous century and so far this century compared to compared to novels um and it makes for these very compelling characters and it makes for an interesting level of um audience engagement because they both have to you you can enjoy the movie but it's so morally corrupt that you also have to kind of justify your enjoyment of the movie or justify yes um, rooting for these characters or pulling for these characters in a certain way. And also going off of something you mentioned, this being, you know, kind of like this turning point in movies, this feels and looks like a modern movie. Um, it does really literally look like a modern movie. Like this is a modernly modern cinematography. Um, not to say that there haven't been movies that were this dark before, but the boldness to make an entire movie that's so skewed with such a strong color look to it, you know, so dark, um, so oppressively like orange um, the entire (laughs) time is crazy. And I can't tell you how many times I've been asked to color a scene like the Godfather. Oh man. It's still referenced all of the time. And 
everything, especially on Gotham. Jeez, like that entire show. Yeah. Yeah, I think I a think lot, that's interesting. I think a lot of this stuff is all this movie does a really good job of setting up what it is in that first scene. So let's kind of break it down a little bit because like we talked about a long time ago on our Spielberg uh, episode, like if you can set up all the expectations for your film in one scene, like right at the beginning, then you're on track for hooking your audience really, really quickly. So in the first scene, we have um, The Godfather, played by Marlon Brando, conducting uh, several uh, different kind of, I guess, quote-unquote business meetings or like uh, meetings regarding uh, his family and stuff in his office in the house while at the same time his daughter's wedding is going on outside in the yard. And so you get this really interesting visual dichotomy of this almost overexposed wedding scene where it's very happy, there's lots of people, there's tons of people actually, um, showing how big this family is and all the people that are involved in it. And then we go into his office where, as you put in your notes, Alex, it's so dark and yet it's still in a day scene, It, but it's so dark that it feels like a night scene. And so you really get this sense of, in the light, there's this big, happy family, but in the shadows, there is a lot of uh, corruption and um, just yeah, really there, secretive stuff happening. There are literally two families that they that both the Don Fido and eventually Michael um, have an allegiance to in the family. And they say family a lot in this movie, but you have to pay attention to what their meaning behind the word is each time they say it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes yeah. when they say family, they literally mean I am related to you. You are related to me. I love and care for you. You love and care for me. And some, most of the time when they say family though, they mean the criminal enterprise that happens to be associated with the Corleones. And it's that duality, that balance that kind of compels these Forward and makes them more than just interesting mob movies that make them thematically important. Um, yeah. This balance between life and death, love and violence, um, family and family, both meanings of the word. Yeah, I think that wedding sequence is, I mean, I wish more movies just started that way. I guess part of the reason for me that I feel like it's so successful with The Godfather in retrospect is that people have watched it so many times and so they've taken it in um, not trying to figure out what's going on, but just enjoying yeah. it. Because that was my uh, experience that, this time. Because yes. I I came into these fresh, so I knew like little things about The Godfather, like the all the quotable lines, which apparently are all in the first scene that I didn't realize, <laughs> um, and yeah. the oranges and stuff like that. But that first scene, it's like there are a lot of white Italian people and Italian names being thrown around, and I'm like, I don't know who any of these people are. <laughs> uh, yeah. But they do oh, some things that with like a Corleone family tree out. Oh, really? like I open up the Wikipedia article so I can keep track of what's going on. That seems useful. Um, oh, that's interesting. But yeah, I mean, that's just movie, for research purposes, people. That's not how you actually enjoy this movie. Yeah, the movie does a good job of keeping the really important people distinct. Like, for example, Kay is always wearing red throughout all yes, the whole film. Catch. Um so I really I Michael can starts off wearing some color too. Yeah, and I can pick out Michael and Kay the whole gray. time. Um, obviously Marlon Brando is unmistakable um, and stuff like that. The some of the other brothers got a little confusing to me because I realized pretty quickly that Michael is the important one. Um, sure. And uh, uh, Robert Duvall's character I could um, kind of distinguish because he's the the quote unquote brother. Um, 
But yeah, at the at the beginning, it's just like, wow, there's a lot of people here. Uh, I'm not sure which ones I need to be completely paying attention to. Yeah, yeah. But the good thing is not that many people last too long in these movies. So <laughs> right. it whittles down pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I just love the way that it... For me, I love opening something like that without the some kind of prologue, even though, you know, two has much more of a prologue to it. Oh, yeah. Um, whereas one really just is like I, the term in media res, which is a Latin term put in the middle of things, is a term mm-hmm. they use in media to uh, res things to note. Yeah. To note that like they, we started here in the yeah in the middle of everything. We're, but by doing that, it gets us into this world without typing something to explain it. You just like the fact that the first thing you see is this uh, guy's monologue about the corruption of the American dream. But that and monologue the is so important. That, I, I think that that's yes. the other thing that this film sets up aside from like this uh, dark shadowy world theme is that monologue sets up who uh, Don Vito is. It says he is more, he is more interested in respect. Like, He'll do the dirty work, but he wants you to um, appreciate that he's going to do that for you. He's not just going to do it for anybody. Um, he is much more concerned about creating allies than about um, mm-hmm. just keeping his enemies at bay. Uh, and I think and that that respect, is going to be yeah. yeah, that is going to be the big difference between Vito and Michael um, when Michael comes on and and he's just afraid that. Uh, his enemies are going to get back at him. So he's just constantly uh, fighting, fighting, fighting. Whereas uh, Vito, even in the short amount of time that we see him in this first film compared with the whole series, he's constantly like trying to keep the peace in some manner or other. Uh, Even if he has to use violence to keep the peace in some kind of ironic way, uh, it's just like a very different approach that these two uh, godfathers have. Yes. And just to the beginning, like the way that it does demonstrate all that, but without like telling you, it just uses just the rich dialogue and the subtle visuals and the personal interactions to fill in necessary plot points to introduce everything. And the way they say things, you kind of get um, like sort of the idea of what they're talking about. And uh, Michael talking about like, um, Luca Brasi, for instance, and telling the whole story about him, that's yeah. a pretty repetitive use of how you introduce someone, but they do it so well. And I think that Al Pacino does such a good job of delivering the lines to Kay. It doesn't feel like, uh, even though Kay does kind of serve as the avatar for the viewer who's dropped into this world the same way we yeah. are, because like, this is Exposition. the first time she's meeting the family, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, we're her. And it's like, what is this crazy wedding? Who's that scary looking guy? Oh, I'll tell you about him. And so it's like we've been invited to this wedding um, to see all these things. So we're not seeing what's on the inside where it's dark. We're just seeing this. But then we also get a glimpse into uh, the inner the inner circle, which is not quite yeah. so bright. I love how brutally honest Michael is at the top of the film. Yeah. Like yeah. he's just telling he's like just telling Kay like all these things about his his family who happens to be a bunch of criminals. Um, just straight out. And then the, literally the last thing he says in the movie is a lie. Yeah. Yes. To her. Right. Straight to her face, which is great. This, this movie balances very well in that way. Yeah. Which is what makes it, uh, so dramatic too, because, you know, I was rooting for Michael. I was like, yeah, we need someone to kind of like break this 
cycle or, yes. or and everything and then you're like oh that's not what this movie is as where do you we where go do you, through it good where do you think the step is that he takes that's too far where he does the wrong thing and takes the business and a more corrupt way than it already was was it killing the heads of the five families was that i mean i think, I think that was point, probably i think that probably was because that was the first kind of anticipatory action that he took because killing the police officer and um, the other guy, the narcotics guy was a retaliation step, which is what the whole, which is how it all started. Um, And so once he took an anticipatory step, that's when we realize, Oh, he's going to run things way differently than Vito did because Vito took that chance that he had to say, all right, you got my, uh, we took, uh, yeah. What was it? <laughs> you took out my son. I took out your son. Let's just call it even and move on. Okay. Uh, and so he's still, he's trying to make that peace and Michael is not willing to do that. I think it's through fear. Um, but maybe it's just like kind of an iron hand kind of thing. Uh, he, d- he definitely was, he was, the, so both Vito and Michael are like need both through different amounts, different balances of it either need or want respect in order to function either as like a person or to be like stable and safe as a Don. And Vito strives to get it through love. He wants people to do it because they respect him and love him and appreciate him. And they come to him because he's the Godfather and the word, the Godfather to Vito means somebody who loves and cares and looks after his family. Mm-hmm. And to Michael, who is thrust in this situation, in many ways, because he acts out of love for his father, he's the only one who goes to his father and saves his father, and he's willing to stand up for his father and um, shut down the Turk and the corrupt cop who are after them and so on and so forth, um, ends up in this position that's thrust upon him that he never wanted, and so is taking a completely reactionary stance and acting out of fear. and to that end, strives to get respect through fear for the rest of the movies, both movies. Yeah. And the step, I, you can tell at the at the funeral scene when the uh, head of the other families are looking at him um, that Michael is thinking that he is next to go if he doesn't do something. And, and then what does his dad tell him? Do it. And that she, someone's going to approach him. And yeah. What happens. Yeah. Yep. That's exact. Yeah, exactly what happens is what happens. He sees the writing on the wall and acts and maybe overreacts like he goes full nuclear option by killing everybody. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I want to bring up that that part that Ben just mentioned where Vito tells uh, Michael, like basically right before Vito dies, that uh, that scene in the garden with him. is Yeah, the scene in the garden where he's he's saying um, someone's going to approach you and they're going to set up this meeting to try and make peace. But that is going to be a. it's going to be a trap. And so then we have this expectation. And I think that if we take that on a broader level, um, cause one of the, f- one of the early lines in the film, one of the brothers kind of like shouts out what he's thinking at the meeting with, uh, the Turk and the, 
the important line is never tell someone outside the family what you're thinking. But Francis Ford mm-hmm. Coppola, through things like when Vito tells him about this thing that's going to happen, is divulging to the audience. So I think Francis Ford Coppola is kind of treating the audience as part of the family, and he's letting us know anything that the uh, the Corleones know, and that way we have this sense of suspense because we know what we're looking for. Um, and I think that's really interesting is like keeping our information limited to what the Corleone family knows, specifically the godfather of the family at whatever particular time that we're looking at. Um, and so I thought that that's just kind of a really interesting approach to what information you reveal, because the information reveal is very important for creating some the suspense, because there is some very, very suspenseful scenes, specifically the one where he oh, kills yeah. the Turk and the... Um, and the police chief where we know the entire plan. And this is like straight out of Hitchcock, basically where we walk in there, we know exactly what he's got, what he's going to do. He's got to find the gun behind the toilet. He's got to shoot them. He's got to drop the gun. He's got to walk out all these things like very to a T we know. And so as the meeting's happening and then he goes to the bathroom and he's looking for the gun. And for a second, you're like, Oh, is the gun there? Because uh, they cut back. They cut back to them eating before yeah, he finds it. Yeah. He's still looking yeah. for it. It's a very yeah. good use of editing like a time to stand time and enhance tension. Yeah. yeah. It's like it's like Hitchcock's uh, famous thing where, you know, you can have two characters having a conversation about baseball for five minutes and then their table explodes and like, oh, OK, that's that's great. That's shocking or whatever. But it's a much more interesting scene. If you know that there's a time bomb set for five minutes under the table while they're talking about baseball, then you're hanging on every single word that they're saying because you don't know when it's going to happen. And that's exactly what what we do here because we know what he's supposed to do. And we're just wondering, like, when's he going to do it? And is it going to go right? Uh, And that happens many times throughout these films. And it's just put to use perfectly. Yeah, that scene, that's uh, that's maybe my favorite scene of all time ever. It's Just, like, it's, you know, it's palpitating, you know, it's it's so tense. And and also because in a sense, to a sense, by that point, like, you are Michael. Like, you are, the viewer sort of assumes the role of that son once you understand everything. And, of, of course, because that point, he was, like, straight up a good guy. You know, he was defending his father. He was yeah. stepping up because it would be the most unassuming thing. We and still so believe thinking, that he doesn't want any part of the family beyond yes. this, revenging his father. Yes. And there's something that is, I don't even, I don't want to say cathartic about the kind of, like, this idea of, like, justified murder, not even, like, technically self-defense. Well, it's revenge. But, you know, we've been, we've been enthralled yeah. by revenge tales since, uh, friggin homer sure sure no doubt yeah you know like Um, anyone who reads the the uh um the bloodbath at the at the feast in the odyssey you know knows this feeling like we we want this to happen because we feel like there's been this wrong there's a sense in the odyssey of of just brutal i mean like people are like begging for their lives and he's yeah i mean it is like we're rooting for this violence to happen but it's all built up to a sense where we feel morally justified in rooting for that. That's yeah, not going to be the case like later on, though. That, yeah, yeah. And they just, this is the family that we got sucked into. Right. And there's almost, uh, it's interesting because it's almost the thing that keeps them good is the old world values. Yeah, because we feel like I, Vito has a moral center that we can kind of get yes. behind, even if his means aren't right. And so right. we're into this family because we. 
we have respect for Vito. Uh, yeah. And so it, Michael has this thing where everyone around him respects him because of his father and the audience gets put in that same place. And we're like, wait a second. Why am I, why am I rooting for him again? Why do I respect him again? It's, it's because we set up Vito so well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then of course they add on to that and to his motivation oh, yeah. his in the, in the next one. But, um, yeah, you know, his whole his whole thing about like we don't want to get into drugs because that's gonna ruin all this. To him, I is you know, borderline ethical and business decision. You know, yeah. he thinks this will be the end of everything, which he was right. But even if you're right, is it better to get ahead of it if the times there are changing, if things are just going there? And that's that generational question that the film asks and ultimately, you know, he was right, it was destructive, but they you know, became the most powerful by you know, it's that clash between old world values and yeah, kind of this kind of new this age, new age American dream. I yeah, guess. no, yeah, the ruthlessness of corporate America. I guess just sort of demonstrating that. Uh, and I mean, and you know, it's so cool how, in retrospect, these movies are confirmed. That you know, this was made in the seventies, and now we look back at like, oh wow, that really was the big thing that yeah made it turn. Yeah, made in the seventies, about the forties and fifties. Yes. Yeah, what is the yeah. timeline? It starts in the forty-two, I think. Yeah, I, I got know. a little confused uh, at some point, especially like gotta, in part three. It's got to start after forty-two because Michael's back from the war, right? Well, is the war over? Are we to assume? I, I guess? think so. Otherwise, it probably would have it been a bigger really part of the background. Okay. Yeah, I doubt he would be spending that much time in America if it wasn't over. That would make sense. Yeah, then they don't. Yeah. So a question that you asked in your notes, Ben, was uh, along the lines of the the background of a lot of this is this um, family war between the 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 different families in New York at the time, and you were like, when when do you think that that started? Uh, like, so do you think it was maybe the refusal of the Turk? Um, getting into narcotics, which all the other families had already done. Um, or mm -hmm. is that because that was still a, a diplomatic decision that, you know, Vito made and then the hit gets taken out on Vito. And I think that was probably the, the first one. Cause that's, that can't justifiably be a retaliative step. Uh, I mean, but, but think about it. If Santino, if Sonny James Conn had not spoken out of turn, and demonstrated, oh, we'd be interested in this if it wasn't for this old fighter guy who wants to like basically saying uh, a lot without saying like he's like, whoa, are you serious? They'll we'll make this much money. Yeah, yeah, you're telling me it's Tataglius, and that's why we don't know that. But the wisdom surpasses any kind of insight into profitability because he realizes all that. Of course, that's Sonny's downfall is rushing headfirst into things without considering the consequences. Right. But I think that he realized that that happens. I don't know. I don't know why he didn't think Sonny would kill all of them. But if he had died, things could have, who knows, gone differently. I have no idea how they got that ambush set up so fast. Yeah, that's pretty. They just put, <laughs> or do they just yeah. always had it there? Just perpetually, they've just been guys there, right? What do you mean? <laughs> or maybe, the, maybe uh, he was. At the toll booth, are we talking about? Or was he, was he, or was the, the brother in law working in tandem with the family who whacked Sonny? Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Absolutely. That and that's why so he was killed at the end. That's right why. Name. That's why he was killed at the end. 
he said he says to him he says that little farce you played with my sister so he yeah. creates a whole scene make has her call sunny or somehow knows she will he knows sunny's gonna without thinking despite the fact that everyone's on the mattresses go to connie's oh, and then, yeah. yeah yeah so that's why they take him out and if you think about it, one thing I do love about part one, because especially if you get into like one and two is like one story. They even have, uh, I think it's called like the Godfather of Legacy now, which is like a chronological version where you start with Vito in Italy oh, and like go a re-edit. through part one and then the end of two. Yeah. That's interesting. I don't think that works as well, but it's interesting. I agree. And, but I think that part one does a really good job of getting bookended by that marriage because it starts with them getting married and ends with him dying. That's no true. longer being yeah. married. And yeah. and Connie coming coming to him and being just totally broken by learning that yeah he so killed she's her a husband. Lot. She's a, she's a lot of an actress in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um so yeah, her her felicitation at the beginning and her kind of uh breakdown at the end. Yeah. And then yeah. she kind of so, she has a really interesting arc through each of these films. Yes, she does. I was not too keen on her ultimate arc in three. Yeah, it felt that was it felt like a disconnect. Oh, uh, so much of that. But, but, oh, I we'll, guess we'll, we'll get, get to there. that. <laughs> but like, uh, okay. Um, so I guess yeah, and I would argue that the second movie is obviously split, and we're going to talk about that here in a second, but. I would say this movie split too. I would say this movie tells two stories at the, at the same way that the part two tells two stories between Vito and Michael. The, the only difference is that the ones in this story tend to happen at the, just happen to happen at the same time. Right. What, what are the two stories? The, the end of a dawn and the beginning of a new one. Oh, fascinating. Although, you know, they they put this is was kind of a controversy is that Al Pacino did not uh, that Marlon Brando won Best Actor and denied it right, but Pacino didn't even get a nomination for Supporting Actor when or no he got a nomination for Supporting Actor but was so mad he didn't get a nomination for Lead Actor or something like that he didn't even come. Um, oh, interesting. But um, I do think it's interesting that Vito Corleone would be thought of as like the lead actor in the film given yeah he's actually the not first in it third, that after much, he gets shot he's as much as i thought of, yeah yeah he's definitely a supporting actor but also marlon brando is marlon mm, brando. a problem child so <laughs> mm-hmm. so i guess the the kind of big thing that we should at least point out in this film because it'll be important when we talk about um the later ones is when Vito actually does die uh at some point in the film and we have this whole scene of the kid. He's a very nice death. Yeah. He's, he's playing with um, one of his young grandsons or someone in the, the actual family. Michael's Uh, Michael's son. Michael's son. Okay. Um, running around and, uh, then he has a heart attack and his son is there, uh, or, or his grandson is there just kind of, um, confused and stuff. So he he ends, he dies surrounded by peace and love. Yeah. In in family. And as like, as kind of an indication of the legacy of the family continuing and that kind of thing, uh, which is going to be important when we come back to part three and all, all that. So just wanted to bring that, that kid up. Actually, that kid actually got scared. Oh, really? When he put the orange in his mouth. Yeah. Wow. That's I mean, I would be scared if Marlon Brando was chasing me with an orange <laughs> in his mouth. So I yeah, sure. Well, of course. <laughs> Marlon Brando is an intense dude. And at this point, even though he was only 40, it's a bit of a weirdo. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, he, he definitely just, I mean, it's, there was no problem with the cause he was supporting at the Oscars. It was just that the way he did it was clearly to make an ass out of himself and make an ass out of the Oscars. So, yeah. Not the only time he, was, he did that in his career either. No. He has a storied history. Yeah, people uh, were not happy, but that was crazy. Apparently John Wayne had to be like, had to be restrained backstage from going out and hitting him or something. No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. gosh. We didn't talk about much at all about um, that big final scene. Or oh, what yeah, the baptism. Do? Okay, okay, we're going to talk about was, the baptism. Here's, here's <laughs> the hit, guys. It was Michael's baptism, really, not the baby's. Yeah, Michael is com- becoming ah. a godfather in reality and, like, the godfather of the family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, it's... Um, it's really impactful, just but also, like, you know, it's pretty clear. A perfect time to use really highly stylized shots, too. Yeah. Like. And Latin voiceover. Primo. Way, way to go. Way to go all out. Like the way to go. ball. That's the time to go balls out with your style for the film. And they did. I, I, originally, they were not going to do it this way. But. Um, and they were going to be separate things happening in like different scenes and different situations just just to kind of paint the picture for for uh, the listeners um at the end of the film when um michael is be is becoming the godfather for uh connie's child uh he's also has hits put out on the heads of the five families so that essentially he'll be the only one left or at least he'll he'll essentially have crippled each of the other families to the point where they can't be a threat until he can move his family to uh, California across coasts. Honestly, um, if you haven't seen this movie, please don't listen to this. Yeah, Goodness. I know. We, that's why I put a spoiler warning at the at the beginning. No, but no, I know, I know. But I just want to. I mean, I'm sure people. Yeah. I just want to preface what what we're talking about as we go through it. I I hear you know because it's, we'll it's all to come intercut. to your house and whack you. It's all intercut. Yeah, I just I think it's really cool the way that they sort of transition from scene to scene. Like in one, uh, Al Neri, the guy who's dressed as the cop you know, is getting dressed and he wipes his face with a cloth. And then the next shot shows, you know, Clemenza climbing the stairs with a shotgun. And he wipes sweat from his face. And um, the trouble they had with making it is how are we going to make all of this one cohesive sequence? We need to have right. five different murders happening and also a Baptist prominently. So by just <laughs> keeping the audio of... So that to give the illusion that it's all happening exactly at the same time, that's what they have them doing like menial things while we hear the audio of the baptism before the actual murders happen so that it gives us that effect of all this is happening right now. And I think it does it better than most other sequences that try to replicate it. Sweet, sweet tension, y'all. Yeah. Yeah. Does it beautifully. Yeah, I think so. And And this is is actually a moment where it's not cathartic because we're like, Okay, Michael. Now you've taken a step too far, and this is a really big yeah. step. So this is not like a okay. I can totally see why he's doing this, where he's coming from. Like we can kind of understand where he's coming from, but we're also like, okay, this is going to be very bad for everybody. Yeah. Um. He goes to Italy. What did you guys think of Michael in Italy? I I I love that stuff. I love the idea of Italy being this place of like peace and happiness for Michael. Cause it kind of echoes like this weird duality that's kind of been happening both within the family and our lead characters, but also kind of, I, I think maybe initially by happenstance, but then by intention, 
as an echoing of the entire Southern Italian Sicilian uh, culture as a whole between this mafiosa activity and this strong family loyalty that happens. So he escapes to Sicily, the source of all this peace and love. um, And then it ends up being really rather up in his face. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of, you know, wrestle with the whole idea of, him having this whole second life, like having his uh, wife there and all that kind of stuff. And then they don't really bring it up. And then when they do, do you bring think it up, Kay again, knows about his wife. That's okay. So that's the thing is that I felt like that could be a really interesting dramatic moment. And then in part three, she mentions it and they don't mention that it was a issue for her. They don't yeah, mention they anything really about it. They just like, Oh, that, she knew yeah. that. I think that's more of a part three fault than anything else. Yeah, I think no, not I mentioning agree. it was a way to go. But I thought that it was Imagine this really if he'd, like, interesting told her thing. Right then, if he just like told her right then, 30 years later, like confessing all said, and she's like, I don't give a shit. What, right. are, you, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, yeah, I just thought it was this really interesting thing that, I don't know, it never got fulfilled in a super satisfying way. Um, but the one thing about the Sicily scene that was incredibly interesting thematically is when they walk through the, uh, the empty city and he's like, where are all the men? And his guide says, they all died from vendettas. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's what we're watching. Yeah, that is interesting. And then we go back there in the next film. I also like the idea that he can't escape now that he's joined the violence. He's in it. He can't escape. And How this is, is the he... natural this is the natural conclusion of that, of constant retaliation. That's the, yeah. the only way to prevent that is to do what Vito did and to say, okay, you got one of ours, we got one of yours, we're done. Yeah. Um, and and now so, just keep going back and It just so happens, forth. guys. It just so happens that Michael, the, reluct- the guy who's reluctant to join the mafia way initially, is really good at it. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's really good that he is fantastic at being a mob boss and keeps the, the business afloat and keeps himself alive until um well of course this whole thing is more spoiler alert but he doesn't die violently he dies really nope. sad in no. a really sad nope. way not with a bang but yeah that's probably he definitely my does favorite not die violently part about part three it's just that everything leading up to it did not like give me the satisfaction he's a victim he's a victim of his own talent in a way his own talent for violence yeah i don't understand how he officially gets away from the mafia by going to the roots and like this is all connected and being insisted like he's sitting down with the girl's dad and he's like oh i'm michael corleone by the way a lot of people want to know that just like telling people yeah, I don't like, he's he, okay there. so that was one I interesting guess was, thing there was no twitter man that was kind of yeah, a but, bit but of diplomacy of saying hey i'm going to open up to you and let you know this because i'm trying to well, earn I get your that. trust yeah i just i know i get that i just i don't no, it may not have been Whatever. the best bit of diplomacy, but at least he tried it and it worked. Well, <laughs> I just don't see how he, by going to Sicily, like, I feel like that's like one of the worst places for him to go, especially if all the men there are, were there before, like dead. Have been to, I don't know. Yeah, but I think um, the well, idea is that it's all over there. There's nothing left. To- I suppose. Yeah. The, the burnout um, wasteland that they've all left behind. Right. Fredo, not, the other brother. Metaphorically. Yeah. Fredo, the other. is a very nice place. Yes. The other brother we didn't talk about, Fredo, we really didn't talk about Sonny that much either, who is just such a commanding performance in part one and doesn't. I had uh, to remember, I mean, who, in, in part two, I had to remember who Fredo was because I totally overlooked him in part one. 
Sure. Yeah, he's the brother who takes him, drive, drops the gun. I and didn't then, even realize he one was the, one of the brothers, honestly, when I watched the first one. Yeah, you, man, it's so crazy. You gotta... But, um... Uh, the scene with Mo Green, the casino guy, when he's like... Yeah. You know, don't ever take sides with anyone against the family. You slap my brother around. Just all that kind of... And the menacing look that Al Pacino gives in his eyes. I don't know. I think it's... Just yeah, because, you know, we talked about how honest uh, Michael is at the beginning of the film. But once he like as he gets into his Godfather role, like he's just stone faced. He's impossible to read at all times. Don't let him know what you're thinking. Yeah. 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 Sonny, yeah. Sonny's the likely heir who goes by the wayside. I mean, I thought right. I think when I was a kid and I watched this movie, the way I really got into it was by thinking about them as like a medieval royal family and thinking yeah. of them as the, as a king, a successor, yeah. the adopted son who's really smart but could never never inherit. It and is yes, the reluctant kid who ends up doing it. The, the literally useless child who's just kind of there but sweet-hearted <laughs> yeah. but also an idiot. Yeah. Um, it is yeah. kind of And I think that uh, – Tom Hagen, Robert Duvall is such a good buffer in this movie that the third movie also is lacking. Right. Um, that I think, yeah, they, they I think you need that contrast. Hagen, but it's not yeah. the same. Yeah. And yeah. the third movie is the only movie that doesn't – well, I mean they kind of try it, but it's the only movie with no veto. And they kind of try to do a thing where Michael becomes veto, veto. and Vincent becomes Michael, but it doesn't really yeah. work. Um, but anyway, we should we should really let's transition really yeah, move, sure. yeah. move on to part two. <laughs> All right, part two. Right. Jason, set us up. The Godfather, part two from 1974, a saga in two parts. The first begins in Sicily, 1901, where young Vito Andolini in the town of Corleone loses his entire family to mafia violence and flees to America. There he finds work and a wife. He rebuilds his family and finds friends, if slightly criminal ones. He bumps up against the local Don and soon finds himself forging his own mafia empire in the land of opportunity. Meanwhile, in the present day, Vito's son, Michael, finds himself the successor to the dubious honor of being Godfather. He struggles to balance his family obligations, the criminal ones, with his wife, children, brother, and sister. Soon the lines between it's personal and it's just business begin to blur. An attempt on his life at his new family home in Las Vegas sends everything spiraling out of control. The balancing act of trying to turn the family business legitimate keeps his loved ones safe, and discovering who he can and can't trust becomes more and more desperate. With every decision, Michael moves closer and closer to determining what really matters to him and what kind of man he truly wants to be. All right, Alex, you want to talk to us about your Pacino De Niro face blindness? Okay, and Jonathan just blew my mind like <laughs> I can't an hour didn't know ago. That. What happened? I- so I have have had the hardest time for a very long time telling Robert De Niro and Al Pacino apart. And part of it is because Heat? I, I've seen Heat and I have a hard time telling them apart in that movie. Like I could tell you, I could tell you that this one looks like this and this one looks like that, but I could not get the name straight. I did not have them associated. Okay. Okay. And part of it is in a lot of ways they're very similar actors they've worked with a lot of the same directors and the same types of movies and the same types of roles over and over and over um they're both very good so it's just very hard and now they're both like old and they kind of have like this interesting like old impression of them that i see a lot um but jonathan was like one of them has a mole man i was like what 
Yeah. I always yeah. look for Robert the mole. I was actually thinking that during the movie, I was like, if they had planned on De Niro being young Vito, would they have given Marlon Brando a mole? Probably. I don't know. It's funny. Um, Probably. Yeah, but no, I've had the hardest time with that for a long time. <laughs> you know, but in this, De Niro was supposed to be, we're not supposed to be, but he was very close to being Sonic. Yeah, yeah. He was deemed. Had he been, yeah. He was deemed like too violent, which I find yes. hilarious because Sonny's such a violent role. Yeah. Yeah. But he was perfect as Vito. I loved that that part of this film. And Alex, in your notes, at some point you were like, I'm just here for De Niro as Vito. <laughs> um, yes. Young I, Robert I, De Niro is like the best. If you guys like Once Upon a Time in America, that's one of my favorites, too. Um, yeah. No, this yeah. this this early gang, the early like 19 teens gang violence stuff like even like hop back across the pond like peaky blinders stuff that that's just that's my jam man it kind I love of that blew stuff. my mind that this film could be simultaneously a great sequel and a great prequel at the same time and yeah, even more both. impactful putting them at like chron like in the same movie it became even more impactful because like Alex said, this is about Vito becoming the Don and it's about Michael uh, destroying his family. And we're seeing those two different chronologies put on top of each other going in opposite directions. And you're like, wow, this is uh, this is big. It's thematically resonant. It's really well acted. Of course, the style is really there. I actually think there are some weak parts of the, this movie um, and maybe because it's just that I've seen it before, but some of the, some of the, uh, the, the conversations between like Michael and, oh, what's his name? Hyman Roth. Yes. Really drag. Yeah. In my opinion. Well, they're yeah. really long. And it's not that they're not interesting. It's just that there, I felt like there was still some fat on this movie that could have been trimmed to make it a little more slim and elegant and the Michael parts felt a little bulky compared to the really yeah. slim and trim. Honestly, like, the, parts. Uh, all the political stuff like really confused me. Like I need to go back and watch this movie again because thinking back on it, I was like, okay, I understand like where their character arcs were going, but for the life of me, I cannot remember what he was doing or why he was like playing this guy against that guy. Was he just like trying to sniff out yeah. the mole or what? So another thing is that Pentangeli who's the guy that shows up in two as if like, oh, this is our good friend that everybody knows, but they never even mentioned him in one. You know who I'm talking about? Nope. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The guy who slits his wrists at the end. Oh, yes. yeah. Okay, I didn't know where he came from. He was, that was supposed to be Clemenza, the fat guy from part one who's okay. like making the meatballs that sets him up with the gun. Okay, okay. Yeah, that would have been a lot more painful to watch. Uh, yeah, Much more dramatic to see. But at Clemenza least he would have had a carry through of a character. Yes. Yeah. So they have to set up sort of thing. And I think that actor does a really good job um, with the role. But yes, that is one thing that got lost. Yeah. But I, I think overall, like like the the themes and the the contrast with that were so strong. That is why it puts yeah. it up on a par with the first one. Um and yeah, just everything else, like technically, directorially, uh, it all worked. Um, so even though I was a little confused on exactly why he was doing what he was doing, I didn't lose the thread of, um, you know, what I was supposed to be watching as far as character development and that kind of thing, um, yeah. which is and like really the, what you're there for. 
literally beat for beat, everything that happens to Vito, the opposite happens to Michael. Yeah. Vito gets a wife and children. Michael loses a wife and children. Vito makes a bunch of friends who are deeply loyal to him. Michael loses a bunch of friends who are deeply loyal to him. Um, so on and so forth. One has a happy ending. One has a really sad ending. And again, and like it, literally, it, literally all of Vito's scenes, there's like, there's some tension, there's conflict, but there's never any like some really deep, like existentially threatening thing to Vito outside of like the first scene of Vito. Like yeah. his entire arc is about moving away from problems towards what's actually a pretty nice life towards the end of it. Yeah, and I mean, we know a deeply where, violent and morally corrupt life, but it's still a pretty nice life. And we know where his arc is going to end because we saw the the beginning of the first one where he's like kind of on top of the world, so to speak. Uh, and ever, like he has that love and that respect and everything, and he knows how to maintain it diplomatically. And again, this film shows that difference between, um, you know, building respect from people and loyalty and using violence only when it will meet that end and using violence out of fear uh, and, you know, in order to prevent a suspected uh, attack rather than trying to prevent that attack by making more allies that will then, you know, prevent attacks from other people. So those two different dichotomies, again, are showing themselves here. And it's really interesting uh, to to see that. And you kind of wonder, like, why, how did Michael not pick that up from his from watching his dad? Was he just ignoring it so much because he thought he hated the business? I think he just thought it was more practical and his dad wasn't willing to do it. I don't know. Yeah. Why does, okay, so here's I think, another question. I think that was his impression of what his dad did. Like, that was yeah, his understanding that's of it. True. That's probably why he didn't want to be involved in it. And now that suddenly he's involved in it, he's acting from a different core, the deep down what makes a person a person place than what his father, what his father was acting from. So I have another question that I think is going to go into part three to some extent, but also plays a big part here, especially with Kay, is how serious is he about making the family legit? Because at the end of one, it, he doesn't seem very serious. He seems like he's completely dropped that goal and he's just like trying to be the best godfather he can. Maybe it's just because he's been thrown into this position un, unexpectedly, but he feels like he's leaning into it. And then in two, you feel like he's trying to do something big with the family, but I'm not sure that that go that big thing that he's trying to do is going straight. Um and that comes back a little bit in part three, but I was always a little unclear about that motivation because obviously the only reason Kay stayed with him is because he promised to go straight um, and just never, uh, once she realized that he was not going to deliver on that, that's when you know she even gets in on the violence uh, on the family by aborting his, uh, his unborn son. That is, no, that is a question I really do have is was, and I think that being legitimate for uh, Michael might not mean we don't sometimes use brute force to get our way, but just like legitimate enterprises, like instead of prostitution and illegal drugs, we'll just like run things out of casinos and we'll provide these things that are legal, that are technically legitimate that people want. But obviously um, Kay didn't see doing. it that way. I guess because, not. Because um, I feel like, I think that's, yeah. 
to him, maybe when he says it, he means it differently, or he's just outright lying to her, or who knows. Yeah. But I'm yeah. curious at what point he stopped being as concerned with that, or because, I mean, I guess he because it feels like in, at the beginning he that's a that's a good goal. He's trying to to do that when he becomes Godfather. Then he realizes, oh wait, this is way dirtier than I thought it was. So I have to just be in it all the way and make take all the measures that I have to. And then I I'm never sure if he's completely lost his goal of going straight or not because. In part three, they try to like do this moral redemption thing where he actually try does try to do that and yeah, kind do. of fumbles the ball. But in part two, that wasn't really a big part of his conflict, except for when Kay is involved, because that was a promise he made to her, which is the only reason that she stayed with him so long. Yeah. Um, and clearly that's not something that he's too serious about. Right. Um, well, at least he doesn't prioritize it over so, much. That was just one of the one of the motivational things that I was never quite clear about. Yeah, I think I think that was one of those moments where he tells her, "Yeah, we'll take it all legitimate." I think he was acting on he was so on his back foot at that point. I think he was just like, "Yeah, well, that's like I could do that. That's an achievable goal." But sure. And she says something like, "That's thing what you that- said." He, years ago he talks yeah he talks about that though at the the wedding before he's in it right so that's why i was that's why i was a little because that was before he was so committed to the violence of the family also what do they define as legitimate because like in the third in the third movie gambling feels like it's deemed illegitimate but in the first and second movie, it feels like moving into gambling is legitimizing the family because it's a legal activity. And I mean, that like is, the casino. Yeah. yeah. So, so, I don't really know what's going on there. Yeah, so those were... I'd have to watch three again, because that gets <laughs> dicey, especially with like the church and stuff yeah. being involved. Yeah, that got really political, like even more so than two does at points. Um you know what this story doesn't have? The Pope. You know who we should add? The Pope. <laughs> you know who we should yeah, kill? Weird. The Pope. Twice. Don't they like kill the Pope in Yeah, the movie? they do kill the Pope. That's, but, that's so ridiculous. Yeah. That's one of those things that movies, that trilogies fall into sometimes, where it's like, we're introduced to this like small world where like they're the kings of that world, but not really, they don't really have this grand effect over the entire world right and then in three it's like they're assassinating the pope and you're like well i thought that this was like my people over like pirates of the caribbean does that when the first one has to like remind people yeah he's captain jack sparrow and he's like that's part of the charm is that oh these are my band of misfits and then in the third one it's like i'm like one of the pirate kings who can save the ocean like they just up the stakes so much that it's like i don't yeah, you know, but, in case of Godfather, it's like I don't. Right, and we'll get to that. To me, I don't know. We'll get to that in part three. Um, but one of the other character arcs that I I want to talk about that's really interesting is Connie, um, who yes. you know was kind of, uh, she was kind of a catalyst for things in the first one, but now she's she's more of an active player where, um, she still has a lot of resentment towards Michael for, uh, you know, killing her husband. Whereas at the end of the first one, you feel like that's just going to kind of, uh, emotionally destroy her and you don't know exactly how 
how much she's going to be able to bear that. Like she feels like a much weaker character. And then in this one, she we realize that she's kind of taken an opposite way of what we might have thought. And she's kind of become this wild uh, you know, carefree kind of person. Like, you know, what she's, what is she's there? literally Michael's spoiled teenage daughter in this one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That that is the exact dynamic they have. And Connie's just like, you're not my dad. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And then at the end, when we get to the point where he's he's just become so violent, I guess. I mean, that's kind of the arc mm-hmm. of the first one, but in this one, it's like violent to the point of destroying his own family and the corruption is reached into the family. It's not just like, oh yeah, New York yeah. is corrupt because there's all these crime families. Um, it's inside of the Corleones and then Connie like crawls back to him and is like kissing his feet almost. And, uh, right. And you know, that's, that's the big thing that, that is dealing with this. Like whenever, um, Al Pacino's talking to his mother and he's like, did, did dad ever, uh, fear that he was going to lose his family? It's like, and we're watching his dad come up and not mm-hmm. really because everything he did was to make the family more loyal to him. Uh, and that's Michael's, all of Michael's methods are doing the opposite. They're pushing his family away, um, yeah. to the point where he Killing literally kills Fredo. Yeah. At the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's, he's trying to replicate the results of his father without understanding the technique at yeah. all. Yeah. Which is, by the way, one of the, one of the reasons we study film here on the Film Linguist podcast, come join us every other week as we learn more <laughs> about filmmaking. That way you can make films like Vito and not like Michael. Yeah. See. Yeah. I will plug the show on the show every time. <laughs> I just feel like I'm trying to con- try of a way that you could actually make another prequel sequel like that because there haven't been a lot of those. I don't know that there are like, any. Oh, because, they did a Godfather thing. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, that's so unique to intercut intercut those two things and have it have each part of it uh, enhance the other part and still all feel cohesive. Like I can't think of any other series that has done something similar. Yeah, uh, certainly. And I think part of it's because they drop you in the middle of one without that whole background. Yeah. It gives them the opportunity to fill that in and complete a story and tie in all those things. We talk about how at the beginning, Michael was like this. And at the end of one, he was like that. They're able to nail that home by showing you kind of bookending it and being like, remember that it was like this. Now it's like this. Yeah. Um, so I guess one thing that that we can point out is um, I didn't notice this in the first movie, but I saw Alex in your notes. You noticed a um, a sled in the first film that was reminiscent of uh, Rosebud. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. When Michael and Kay and, are buying gifts. Oh, okay. Because there's another one in part two when he's walking to uh, into his house in California, and it's all snowy, and there's a shed or there's a sled outside of the house. And I thought the same thing. And that's interesting that that shows up in both of them because that's kind of the arc is that he's pushing his family away and losing sight of what actually matters um, by trying to achieve what he thinks matters uh, in the moment. I mean, that would that would be more likely a direct reference if Francis Ford Coppola was known as like a big fan of movies and he studied a bunch of them and he was known as maybe like a film brat. Oh, wait. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wait. (laughs) So, oh, that could be – I've never even considered that. That's very interesting. It's possible. It's very possible. It's also possible that he just liked the look of that sled 
Um, and also, I mean, those or maybe kinds just of all sleds look the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or just like period piece sleds, like in 1974. What uh, what selection did they have for period piece sleds from the 1950s? Right. Right. I haven't yeah. changed that much. I feel like he's even said that oranges weren't intentionally uh, oh, homo- really? like a death homage. It's just like the color palette looked good. But I don't know. There's so many of those. Like there's yeah. the one of the Don Sable. There's you have. Tessio peeling an orange in the wedding. There's a sign for California oranges in the background when Sonny gets You have shot Vito down. putting the orange in his mouth when he dies. His mouth. Michael, by the, by part three, it must have been intentional when Michael drops oh, yeah. the orange as he dies. Like Part three so. is just, it's it's almost a parody of itself. Like, I hate to say sure. it, but at some point, yeah. it's just too self-referential. And we've seen other series like that, but it's kind of sad to see it in this one. When Talia Shire poisons the guy at the opera and like watches him choke and die, and she's like, "Goodbye, Godfather." I was like, "This is a joke." Oh god, this is not. Uh, I can't take this here. Okay, are we ready to move on to that one? Yeah, let's do it. I think so. All right, so let's move on to Godfather Part Three. The Godfather Part Three from 1990. Jumping far in time from the events of the last film, an elderly Michael has taken the family business to complete legitimacy, but his relationship with his wife and children is still strained and he still carries mountains of guilt for sins he can never hope to atone for. As his son decides to become a singer instead of joining the family business as a lawyer, Michael starts to mentor his nephew, Sonny's illegitimate son, Vincent Mancini. Vincent, as hot-headed as his father was, gets into an escalating conflict with longtime Colleone capo, Joey Zaza. While Michael discourages this fight, he soon discovers that Zaza, backed by a Don disgruntled that Michael has exited the criminal gambling business, is looking to kill Michael and take over the Corleone Empire. Meanwhile, the newly legitimate Corleone Empire is stepping in to alleviate the debt of an archbishop, buying a majority share of the Internationale Immobiliare, essentially buying the Vatican's interest in the company. But both the Immobiliare and members of the church seem to have issues with being associated with a criminal, even if he's a reformed one. After another assassination attempt on Michael sends him and Vincent reeling, and while Vincent tries to secure his future, Michael tries to secure his legacy. But will that be a legacy of family or a legacy of violence? Okay, Ben, so since you just you just mentioned the cannoli the cannoli death, y- y'all know who uh who that guy was who got poisoned by the cannoli, right? Um Eli uh, really likes cannolis? Eli Wallach. Yeah, yes. Who is ugly from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Oh, He's just wow. really old in this movie, but he's... I thought you were just going to say it, he's though. ugly, and I was like, wow, that's mean. <laughs> no, he's just such a fun character. Like, at some, halfway through the film, I was like, oh my gosh, I know him. And I love Eli Wallach as an actor. Um, so that was a lot of fun and just random. That is cool. I, you know, I never put it together. That's so interesting. Okay, well, let's go around, let's go around, let's go around real quick. Now let's take the temperature of the group. Who <laughs> here liked The Godfather Part 3? Show of hands. I mean, show of voices, because this is a podcast. Mm. I acknowledge it, and I'm like, okay. But, like, it kind of says a lot of things that didn't really need to be said. It's like, yeah. at the end of 2, it's like, oh, look where Michael's going to end up now. And then in 3, it's like, this is where Michael ends up. And it's like, yeah. right, you didn't take me on a arc to, i guess they try to shoehorn in he's trying to get better and then he doesn't yeah but like there's no you haven't taken me from one place and brought me somewhere else yeah yeah it was just really sad really 
And yeah. I think one of the first things that you notice about it is that it doesn't feel the same. Like, like the the acting and the directing and the I don't know, just the dialogue felt way more direct in the godfather part one and part two there were so many times when there's just like silence and there's just this machination happening kind of underneath the surface in part three they just say everything that's that's happening it wasn't nearly as dark as the first two either no. i mean like literally literally in any it, sense the, the scenes were just like too bright i could tell what was going on too well i think coppola makes better movies and he's like under pressure yeah um and like young in his seventies than he is when he's like sipping wine in the 1990s, like being comfortable. And it just kind of felt, I don't want to say safe, but just like, yeah. not even safe, but just like uninventive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there were parts where like in the Sicily scenes, it felt like, Oh, this is just us walking around Italy and remembering the Godfather, like just talking about the Godfather yeah. movies. Cause they were just talking about things that happened. And then there were also times when like, Connie is bringing up uh, the the bastard son to be the new Godfather. That felt like the Star Wars prequels, like a friggin' Darth Sidious and uh, Darth Vader thing happening. Um, and it, yeah. it just had like a uh, lot of really of weird. Movie. You know what's it's weird to me? The, the amount of the amount of people who compare like the Godfather to Star Wars prequels oh, really? when they haven't seen it. And like, yeah, they'll be like, oh, kind of reminded me of like. Palpatine. I'm just like, that's so just this one. The, the other two didn't, even though there's like a lot of power dynamics, but this one where like there was one scene in particular where Connie was sitting there and uh basically telling what's the guy's name? Was it Vincent. Joey or whatever? Oh no, oh yeah, yeah Vinny. Uh and he, she was like, You are going to be the new godfather. And I was like, She's she's christening him the new Sith. Like, what is happening? Yeah, that's yes, that's interesting. Yeah. And okay, so on paper, like if you look at the facts, like if you read a script for what the movie that we saw, you you probably have some problem with the dialogue, but a lot of the thematic a lot of a lot of the elements make sense thematically. Like ending the thing in Sicily has a nice ring to it. Yeah. Um his his Michael's son finally going legitimate has a ring to it. Um, the, the way he dies has a ring to it. Um, the involvement of somebody who was previously not involved in the family has a ring to it. Uh, and all of this, all of this brings me to, to a point, And I see this a lot about a lot of movies, um, that are very popular and maybe don't have the best reaction. Um, <clears throat> uh, specifically one that happens to have a man fond of bats and another one who you'd call super where you look at a lot of things on paper and you're like, wow, thematically, that's really brilliant. Um, but here's the thing. It can be thematically brilliant as you want it to be. You can set it up on paper as nice and pretty as you please. But if you don't feel it when you watch the movie, it doesn't count. And yeah. in this movie, you do not feel it and it doesn't count. You don't feel the impact of the scenes the way you do. The beginning scene where like Vincent like bites that dude's ear, which is like really random, by the way. Yeah. Maybe that could have been set up better if like Vincent had been super violent in some earlier yeah. scene we saw of him. We didn't know who he but was at that got, point. All we got was when he like walked into a room, clapped, and everybody gave him a weird look. Um And then Sophie Coppola hit it, hit on him. Yeah, which was just weird. Like the cousin <laughs> loving thing is really weird. I'm sorry. Yeah. The only thing I can think of is that it's showing this, like, uh, again, this weird, like, infection that's gotten into the family where it's, like, 
it's destroying itself from the inside and that's like a really weird way to show that but it just doesn't work and also their performances don't make it work they don't help at all oh yeah no Sofia Coppola can make some brilliant movies this yeah, is, but she cannot. She she also did a lot of child acting, and this is not one of her good roles. No. Yeah. This, is, this did not work. No, goodness. And nobody it cared like, about it either. Felt like she was, it felt like she was in a different movie than Vincent, who thought he was in a different movie than Michael, who thought he was in a different movie than Connie. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the other thing about the, the cousin loving scene, which, you know, you might scenes, be able to just scenes, scenes right Jonathan. which you might be able to kind of overlook it except for they keep beating you over the head with it like it's constantly being brought up and they're like you can't be with him it's too dangerous for you you can't be with him it's too dangerous and for you and it's like okay and she's gonna die cool? okay we got it <laughs> yeah yeah okay but the point that she dies you can't you she hasn't even fully developed as you a don't character care. outside of male concern yeah it's like i feel bad oh yeah no it fails the bechdel test real hard yeah um this the, the, the character has no depth to her um oh yeah 100 percent. there's like barely any women in the first one yeah. yeah um but yeah it just falls apart and i don't know maybe building a love plot line was an attempt to build over win over the audience and maybe there are parts of the world where Actually, did you know, I think the U.S. is the only place where marrying your cousin is actually illegal, but it's taboo in most other places because guess what? You no longer are restricted to just the adults your age in the village right. of whom you can marry. You have options. Um, so making, I don't know, I just, it's such a flabbergasting decision. It does not win over the audience at all. And typically that kind of like forbidden love type thing is a great way to win over, especially an American audience who yeah. love rebels, who yeah. love people going against the grain, who love like fighting for the little guy against it. Like it almost felt like it was trying to have like a West side story, but they were both from the same side, side. west side like way too closely um especially because so, that's not just, the main thrust of the film it's not like this okay let's make this this weird love thing let's challenge this it's just thrown in there in all this other stuff that we're supposed to just accept on all our other preconceived totally, ideas but there's definitely parts where it totally takes it over like there's like sequences like five or ten minute spans yeah. where like that's all you're thinking about and wasn't particularly like that specifically made it so that she died like it's not like that really to the audience made it seem like if they do this then something else won't be able to happen it's like right. it's too dangerous because more people will find out and they'll laugh at us like what <laughs> why is this dangerous outside of the taboo like i don't yeah there wasn't really yeah. as much tension to it as it was just like a way to shoot like put a like a like a romance in there but add Okay, so another another thing that kind of falls short of uh, building building suspense or building a scene as well as the other two movies do is the whole. Okay, so there's a lot of stuff that happens at the opera at the at the end. Like I feel like a lot more of the film happens at this end opera scene than I that feel like it should. But this yeah. this whole thing where it's basically. Um, the scene from the man who knew too much where he's going to kill them at the mm -hmm. opera. He's going to wait for like the moment where he can do it, but he keeps getting thwarted by all the guards that he just kills anyway and doesn't really have any issue with that. Um, yeah. but it, it wasn't, it wasn't very suspenseful because it keeps getting kind of diffused. And then, uh, we're not, 
I don't know. I, I, I didn't feel that I didn't feel that, uh, you know, heart palpitation that I felt when I knew exactly what was going to happen when Michael was walking in there with those two guys. It was just like, OK, he's probably not going to kill them at this opera. Like, I don't know that there's a big moment where he could have the chance like I did in The Man Who Knew Too Much. I know I'm waiting for the symbol crash or something like that. He's just kind of there. He keeps almost getting uh, thwarted, but not really. And I don't really think he's going to pull it off. So we spent a lot of time on something that I wasn't that apprehensive about. Sure, yeah. And, you know, by that point, you can wonder, like, is Michael going to die? Because, you know, originally the movie was... Coppola wanted to title the movie The Death of Michael Corleone. He didn't want it to be... Oh, interesting. Uh, like, tied in, like, this is the third party. He just wanted it to be sort of an epilogue. And then the studio, of course, was like, no, you have to call it The Godfather Part 3. And it had to be... Kind of like, sort of like how, you know, Peter Jackson's Hobbit movies got strung out into its yeah. own, trying to be authentically serious and epic thing it's sort of like yeah i feel like he just wanted like yeah like he sort of wanted like oh and by the way just one more thing and it's like no a whole other thing yeah so not a lot of the whole other thing works yeah and then uh, i guess is there anything else to say about the the pope killing scene and the the confession scene like also didn't totally work for me because i felt like he had zero remorse when he actually killed fredo and then all of a sudden, he's kind of having this life reevaluation, but not enough yeah. for me to feel for him when he breaks down with the bishop. Yeah, I'm sure. But by that point, it's like it's kind of too late. Yeah. Yeah. And what you don't have enough time. If that's how the, if they'd done more with that character of Michael, maybe from the beginning of three. Yeah. Um, but it's like okay, I get that he's kind of feeling bad, but. I don't know. There wasn't enough. Ha- there wasn't enough that he did or said that made me believe how remorseful he was about his old life. Yes, yes. And there's also an aspect of it's hard to compare it to part two because with most sequels, you don't feel like they're necessary. But it's like, oh, that was another little story. Part two feels so necessary, and mm-hmm. there was no more necessary steps to take. So they took an unnecessary step to try to make an exciting movie or an enjoyable movie with these characters, minus Tom Hagen. Who yeah. They just didn't want to give Robert Duvall $10 million. I don't know why. Because <laughs> if he's still alive, like, how do you not get him? And I think that's really a deficit to the film with that balance isn't there. But, um, and honestly, now that I'm thinking about it, because I think that the last shot where Michael dies with just surrounded by the dogs, like as a contrast sure. to Vito dying, I think was my favorite part of the whole movie. Like, I almost wish that yeah. scene was just thrown on to the end of two or something. Uh, sure. But also... Come to think Which of it, part two that basically ends that way. I know it doesn't add anything because at the end he's killed his brother. He's alone in the house. Like you've basically got us there Outside already. The Why house. are we yeah, taking like, that step again? Yeah, it really does. Yes, feel redundant. And, and then we throw in this whole like we're going to buy this company that runs the world or something. Like we've already been talking yeah. about. That was just so confusing that I don't even remember all the stuff that goes into it. Uh, oh no it's needless it's needless talk going back to like star wars it's like the star wars prequels with like all that political stuff just randomly thrown in that flew for the republic of like the child audience they were aiming for yeah right yeah very very inconsistent tonally how like a big senate meeting and then something really silly and then something like dark and you're like who is this for yeah no it it just mm, it doesn't really fit it feels like 
maybe there's something to be told about Michael's final confession and his final redemption if that's if he attempts that and never uh, succeeds or if he manages to succeed in what lengths he has to go to it feels like there's something that could be very interestingly said about that yeah but it doesn't feel like this movie says that yeah I think I'd be more interested almost in a movie where uh, he's driven like after two he's driven everyone so far away that he is trying to open up to people but nobody will listen to him anymore and they only need like orders to kill people and stuff uh, like yeah. as such an opposite thing from Vito that he just can't get anyone to uh, listen to him or accept his um, his confession at all. Uh, I don't know, but I, I'm not Francis Ford Coppola. What did, so. what did you guys think of um, uh, Vincent, not an Italian name, uh, Garcia, Alex Garcia? What did you think of him? I What's mean, his name Alex Garcia? He was fine, I guess. I mean, I... I was just trying Andy to Garcia, get, that's his name. I was just trying to come to terms with his character, I think, the whole time. But I did not yeah. believe any of his scenes with Sofia Coppola and uh yeah. everything else felt I don't know. And and we talked about this a little bit like yesterday, was, Ben. All of his scenes were either I want to love my cousin or I want to kill Joey Zaza. Yeah. And I feel like those were two very basic needs and he didn't get fleshed out much beyond that. I like the scene in the thugs break into his house. That's cool. That felt a a, that, that felt more godfathery than anything else in the movie. Yeah, honestly. exactly. Yeah. But so, since we're trying to get away from the that, violence there, I was yeah. like, okay, so now we're in New York. We've got a scene that feels like the other Godfathers, but it's just it's not contextually there with anything else. Yeah, yeah. We don't. Yeah, we don't get much of what makes Vincent tick inside. Yeah, we we get to, we get his wants and needs, but we don't really understand him as a person. Like what drives him, what makes yeah. him work. We get that he's angry and he's volatile, but outside of that, yeah. And yeah. I think Ben, we talked about this a little bit um, off yeah. the air. Is this the idea that this film comes to a? I mean, it it really hypes up this idea that these are operatic films. And um, it becomes blatantly that by the end where they're at the opera and then literally whatever happens on the opera happens outside of the opera when they're walking home. Um, Yeah, and I I do. Mm -hmm. It it was just it was too much. It was like hitting you over the head with it. Like we get that the the Godfathers were operatic in a sense and melodramatic in a sense, but they were grounded enough in reality that I cared about them. And they weren't just all archetypes that were just representative because their particulars didn't work. Yeah. And they, they, I do think they overdo it, but they try to excuse it with, or at least say they're doing it intentionally by him saying to Kay, you know, we're in Sicily, a little opera or something Yeah, when they're eating, you know, and it's like, Nice try. I don't know. The other ones, the other ones felt so personal and realistic that it's like this would be the natural conclusion to things, not like let's dial it up and dial it up and dial it up. And this movie does that with steps that don't really take us there as a viewer the way we did before. Yeah. And it doesn't introduce it to anything like a new or interesting um, the way the other two do. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not my favorite. Not anyone's favorite. <laughs> if if it is, I'm sorry, but hopefully we convince you. Yeah, but <laughs> more power to you. Feel free to let us know why, please. 
All right, well, let's kind of move on into overall notes and talk about them as kind of a whole trilogy or a whole story um, in in some sense or another. So obviously these films are incredibly influential. We, we kind of started the episode yeah. talking about like how well regarded they are still like uh, 30 some odd years later. Um, and there are so many things that have just kind of become ingrained in the culture, Marlon Brando's performance. Um, and again, I'm kind of the only one that went into this movie fresh this week or, uh, for this episode. So I already knew things like the oranges. I knew the, I'm going to make him an offer. He can't refuse thing. Um, I knew the horse head stuff. I didn't realize honestly how much of the Marlon Brando stuff and the horse head was like right at the beginning of the first movie. Uh, did you know that horse head's real? Yeah, I did not know his that. scream is real because he did not know they were going to use a real horse oh, head. Gosh. Yeah, no, Coppola, Coppola saw the fake horse head they made and was like, that's not real enough. So they went to like a nearby, I don't know if it was like a glue factory or a dog food factory, one of the two. And they found a horse that was marked for death and they were like, that one. We want that one when it's dead. Give us oh, its head. Man. And so that's exactly what they did. And I that's feel like some... you would definitely not get away with that these days for oh, a no. good reason. <laughs> for, for so many reasons, I can't believe to count. Count. That's some Louis Bunuel like uh, surrealist messed up stuff. Yeah, no, I'm sure it was smelled awful. That actually plays Jack Wolf. I think is so good. I mean, just his, and they have a lot of those in like the first one where like characters show up and they're so memorable, like that. And they're not even that big producer. of a role. Like no, they're he's, just memor- he's they're in there a little bit. Parts of like the period piece. Yeah, his lines in that with with Duvall, and again, we barely even talked about Duvall and how much he grounds these movies i feel yeah. like having a player who's not you know a uh, uh an italian guy who's like hot-blooded like that to, to temper everything and the fact it never that feels like he's in danger right and yeah. the fact that uh michael kind of pushes him away and in the second one he is talks to him about how the fact that he's not telling him everything that he's thinking which again if we're going back to that idea of don't tell anyone outside the family what you're thinking. He's almost treating him as if he's outside of the family, which is not what uh, Vito did, who was completely open with him uh, the whole yeah. time. Yeah, everybody who's not Vito is really mean to Tom. <laughs> I don't yeah. understand it. Like, everybody's like, you're not a wartime consigliere. Um, yeah, and I think he takes, he takes him out to protect him, though. Yeah, and in, in a way to move the family closer to legitimacy, I think in a lot of ways, um, by making him the family lawyer, uh, I don't, I don't fully know what his his plan behind it was. But again, that's part of it. Like Michael's incredibly enigmatic because he doesn't tell anybody, including the audience, what he's thinking because right. the audience is outside the family. Right. Yes, it's interesting. Yeah, and I mean the so other. We do get a sense of things, yeah. Yeah, and the other part of the legacy of these films is that you know they kind of kick off the whole mobster genre in a sense. Like there have been some before, well, but they re- they they re- they reinvent it because yeah. mobster films were huge, but or they're they very epitomize very it. different. They're very very different. They're yeah. much closer to like a film noir type deal, um, much more stylized and brash. Well, not more stylized, but stylized in a different way and brashed and maybe epitomized by like James Cagney. But the modern the modern day gangster films are all based off of The Godfather. 
Right. They they are all he has they have become the defining mobster film. They didn't invent the genre, but they definitely have become the pinnacle of it in a way that no other gangster movie has even come close to. Nothing like there's been good gangster movies since, but none of them have even touched. Yeah, I think think I mean, some people like Goodfellas a lot. I'm not not saying it's bad, but I don't think it. But I think that. Oh, man, starting a Goodfellas beef. (laughs) <laughs> but I think what makes these really impactful is that they're thematic. They're not just about gangsters. They're about yes. um, these themes that are so deeply ingrained in these each values, of the characters yeah. and watching those arcs. Their arcs are so distinct and so interesting um, that it's not just like gangsters doing mobster stuff and we're driven by some very interesting plot things, which plot films are great, but the plots are always reinforcing other uh, subliminal things that have a bigger and higher meaning than just exactly what's happening in the film. Yes, absolutely. All right, guys, I have a question for you. Yes. Okay. Why, why is it so hard to make a good trilogy? Yeah. Because I don't, I there's think... so many of them that just don't work, but there's, there's like yeah. a few that do and they're of ranging quality, but I'm talking about the ability of a trilogy to actually land itself and make sense as a trilogy. And like I feel like the Godfather trilogy doesn't hit that note. Right. But like the original, the original Star Wars trilogy does it. I yeah. think the Jason Bourne trilogy does it. As Jonathan and I have talked about, we're kind of obsessed with those movies. <laughs> um, weirdly enough, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but How to Train Your Dragon, like its final installment just came out like the other the other week. Surprisingly solid trilogy. I'm not saying they're brilliant films, but wow. Yeah, like, my wife thematic my wife watched all three of them this past week and got like way into it. Uh they're but really yeah, I've good, heard great man. things about it. Um, of course, Lord of the Rings, Jonathan's all-time favorite. Yeah. Um, maybe the probably the best trilogy ever made. I'm you know, but that. I think that what some of us have now, not how to change your dragon, I cannot speak to that. But I will say that something is that I think part of what I don't want to say needs to make it work because, like, Toy Story did it without doing this, but like having telling one story over three parts yeah. is different. And one and two tell one story over two parts, right? Kind of three parts, but you know, and then, and then, then Lord of the Rings is telling it. one story over three parts, but then three isn't quite that um yeah it's trying to tell a new story the brilliant the brilliant thing about the trilogies that work and i would i would would throw out that in this conversation i'm talking purely about um actual trilogies trilogies that are connected by story so plot-based trilogies not the color trilogy we already talked about that not the uh, Cornetto trilogy, which we have a whole episode about yeah. way back when we barely knew what we were doing. Not the episode, episodic like things like Bond or Godzilla or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, no, 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 no. And I, in fact, I one of the reasons I did not include Toy Story on this list is because they are like in July, I think, about to drop their fourth film. Yeah. So it's about to no longer be a trilogy. Um, what is it? Toy Story 4. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 So and maybe maybe Toy Story 4 will be real bad and we'll just consider it like a trilogy. Um, but knowing knowing Pixar, it'll be like at least middle of the road. Yeah. Um, but it's just so so all of these are both. They have a very good sense of being one story with three individual stories tucked inside them. And I find that the trilogies that don't work so well are the ones that are trying to 
break it down or two of the movies are more similar than the third movie you know like yeah. the matrix the first movie is a thing and then the second two movies feel like are they were only thing. planned after the first movie was a success yeah and then it came apart or like the ya novel movie boom of the past decade you know all of the move final final uh movies being split into two parts suddenly you have a weird balance in your movies that's being totally thrown off um I think an back. exception to that, though, it would be Star Wars because Star Wars comes out and nobody knows how's it, how it's going to do. And uh, they're like, OK, so now we've got to make some sequels. And there was not like a whole consensus. Like one of the stories is that George Lucas basically just told um, uh, Kasdan, like, uh, you know, uh, Luke is is uh, Darth Vader's son go at it and then they just kind of built it up around there so i think star wars is kind of an exception but yeah i agree if you have a plan for your films when you set out you have a much better chance of making them mm-hmm. all feel cohesive yeah even if you don't and have don't... the luxury to like make them all at the exact same time like they did with lord of the rings which is one of the reasons mm-hmm. that it, it is one of the best uh trilogies that holds together because they were literally just all made at the same time there was no no time to uh forget the way it was done or for, or like have different people behind the scenes or any of that. But even films that don't have that luxury can still kind of do things to make it all come together better. Yeah. 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 And I feel like with like star Wars, I feel like the idea, the second, the first one was a hit was to keep making a lot of them Yeah, (laughs) just from what I know about George Lucas. So I think the idea was to keep them kind of episodic, literally. Um, yeah, I don't I mean, think he going called back them to episodes the, right But going away, back to the right? basis of them, like in Flash Gordon. Yeah, yeah. Like it was based off of a contained story with a beginning and an end that could be part of a larger story strung together, yeah. but didn't suffer for being broken apart from the other other bits and pieces of it. And it had been so long, yeah, before yeah. Yeah. since the 70s. All of this, all of this old, is to like say guys, that I am aboard the How to Train Your Dragon hype train and I invite <laughs> all of you to join. I will. All right. I, I'll let you know about that. Because I, I watched I watched the final one theaters the other week and I really liked it. So, yeah, I'm just, yeah. I'm just throwing that out there. My wife said she okay. cried three times at it. So I'll have to check it out. Well, that's all I need to know. <laughs> anyway, um, my other my other fun point is that the number of string lights in the films this week is highly satisfactory. And I demand more of them in more films. <laughs> um, well, my last little tidbit is that. Guys, there's been a lot of mafia news this this week as of recording this. Um, in the last week, two mob bosses have died. One of them, Carmine Persico, the head of the Colombo family, died in prison at the age of 85. And uh, Fran- Francesco Cali was shot to death on his lawn in a scene like straight out of a Godfather film or a mob he film. Got whacked. <laughs> he literally got whacked. This is this. This is this week, guys. This just happened. Yeah, no, it's really weird. That it's is really weird crazy. That that that, yeah. That this week, about for us, for us, I'm sure for everybody else, it's like, oh my gosh. The, the Didn't even realize how active that thing. was. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. So I'll post a link to the articles of that, but I was just like, what are the chances that uh, we're talking about the Godfather films and two modern mob bosses have died this week in the news? Was was the was the second one was the one in prison poisoned like the Pope or did he actually just die? The article says that his uh, cause of death is unknown. Um, so oh, that's boy. a little sketchy. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Whitey Bulger from um, 
what was the Johnny Depp movie called? Oh, Black uh, Mass. Black Mass. Yeah, he got whacked in prison for being a rat. As like a ninety-eight-year-old man. Oh my gosh! Like a few months ago. Yeah. Uh, so man, these films are snitch, uh, modern history. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh! All right. There you well. Go. I'm glad we could talk about these with you, Ben. I'm excited to have seen them and to have fully vented all your thoughts on them. Maybe not all of them, but uh, got to talk about them on the air. Um, but yes. Alex, what will we be talking really? about next time on the podcast? Next time we'll be talking about Monty Python. Yeah, and they're, they're, it's going to be a good one. I've already started on the work for that episode. It's going to be it's going to be a good one, guys. It's going to be a really fun one. Uh if you haven't read their autobiography, it's like it's only like a two hour long audiobook. I highly recommend it. And obviously they only have three narrative movies. They have like a collection of live shows and extended sketch shows, kind of like um, an extended episode of the Flying Circus. Um, yeah. And the meaning of life kind of walks that line, but it's decided it was decidedly a movie production. Um, so th- they really only have three movies that we can talk about. So those are the ones we're gonna talk about. Of course, Monty Python and the Holy Grail from 1972, Life of Brian from 1979, and The Meaning of Life from 1983. Um, three of the most unique comedy movies to come <laughs> out to that point, maybe oh, since. Yeah. Um, with a sense of humor humor. that probably did more work to inject the British sense of humor into America than anything it has before or since. So it'll be a great, I mean, it'll just be a fun one, if nothing else. Even if we don't come to any dramatic, wonderful point for the meaning of Python, we will at least have fun talking about it. So highly recommend you guys come back and check it out. And if you have any friends who enjoy Monty Python or just want to hear about modern day Dons getting whacked, <laughs> we are your source of all Monty Python and Don whacking news here at the Filmlings. Come check us out. And I do want to point out that uh, Monty Python was actually a, uh, a poll choice from our patreon poll so we've moved all of our listener selected episodes to patreon so if you'd like to get your input in on the next one the next poll we'll be putting out probably in a couple weeks uh then you can subscribe on patreon and uh, we have a couple new uh subscribers so thank you to you guys and uh on the patreon podcast we have just talked about a recent release that's still in theaters uh apollo 11 so if you want to hear our thoughts on a film that is in the theaters uh you can check us out on patreon there also um and we will also have uh, some commentaries coming up in the future so we'll keep you updated on that I am dying to see that Apollo 11 movie. Was it really good? I'm trying to see it this week. It was a great experience in theaters. But I won't say any more about it, so you can go (laughs) listen to the bonus podcast. Okay, okay, okay. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Garinger. My Twitter is at Kennedy and Heidi. It's actually a a Sopranos reference. Deeply rooted Sopranos reference. Okay. At Kennedy and Heidi. <laughs> Appropriate for the week. Yeah. There you go. And I am at the Blue Jay, 1994. And to find links to things we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right. Thanks again, Ben. It was a great talk. Absolutely. Yes, thank you, Ben.
Should we should we preface this with um the Italian cred among us? Who me? I'm I'm a quarter Italian. I'm half. <laughs> ben is very Italian. Yeah, I was about to say Ingrisano. I think I'm just French. So <laughs> <laughs> um, y'all Stop can take all so of that. Freaking Anglo. <laughs>